Now, I know you. We hate to get it wrong. I mean, is there anyone who's like, oh, I can't wait to make a mistake. I love it when I fail. No. But we, we sometimes do not realize. In fact, most of the time we don't realize that God uses our failure. Because, in fact, I was going to quote all this, but I don't have time. All these famous businessmen and actors who talk about failure being the greatest teaching agent they ever had in their life. One of my favorites is Heinz, who is behind Heinz ketchup and Heinz 57 sauce. I already told you the story of the 57 sauce, but just how he got it wrong. His first business ventures failed and he went in great debt. He had to declare bankruptcy, but it was through his failure. He he went back and he saw the places where he failed and he determined not to fail in those places again. And he paid back all his benefactors who he had borrowed money from so that when he started his business again, everyone was willing to invest again. And that is why we have Heinz ketchup, which really is the best tasting ketchup if we're going to be honest. But God uses our failures to teach us some of the deepest, greatest lessons because it's when we fail that he really gets our attention. Isn't that true? It's when we suffer loss that you're like, you got my full attention now. You know, I overspent. I, I did this. You've got my attention. The Corinthians were perfectionists. They held the apostles and teachers to the highest standards of elocution. In fact, instead of hearing the message or getting the gist of the message. They were more interested in how the apostles said it than what they said. And so they critiqued and they had unrealistic standards of perfection. They hated getting things wrong, but Paul, the apostle sent them a letter of correction because of their pride, because of their perfectionism and through their perfectionism, they had gotten it wrong. And they were so upset when they got this letter of correction from Paul that Paul had to send Titus to them with another letter. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, like 7-11, Paul talks about how failure and repentance works in us something greater. For godly sorrow, godly sorrow, produces repentance to salvation. It causes a change in us, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, it produces death. It's over, it's bitter, they're angry, they're stopped, they're paralyzed. But Paul says, for observe this very thing, That when you sorrow in a godly manner, what diligence it produces in us. This diligence, we're going to get it right. What clearing of yourselves, we're going to get rid of the wrong. What indignation, I don't want to sin again. What fear, Lord, you're greater and bigger than I realized. What vehement desire, Lord, I want to stay close to you. What zeal. What vindication in all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Paul is saying, do you see 
what your failure did? Do you see what that repentance in a godly manner? You see as believers, even in Proverbs, it says that the godly man will stumble seven times, but every time he will get up, he will get up. Getting it wrong can actually be beneficial to us. We serve a God who does not expect perfection from us. He is, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, he is the God of all grace. All grace. And in this grace, he forgives us. In this grace, he is patient with our imperfections. In this grace, he allows us to repent, to say, I'm wrong, and he still loves us. You know, sometimes we have this, this idea that if we say, I'm wrong, God's going to go, okay, get out of here. Go away. You know, I even thought that with my husband. You know, The minute I say, I'm wrong, Brian's going to go, okay, new wife. <laughs> But you know, he doesn't. He's like, I knew it. I've just been waiting for this. Isn't it great? Doesn't it feel good? And you're like, no, stop that. <laughs> but you know, God's not waiting to choose another people. He's not waiting to choose another person. When we say we're wrong, God says, great, now we can go forward. Now I can do this right. Now we can go back to that place of defeat and we can have a victory. He allows us do-overs. We got it wrong when we did it on our own. We got it wrong when we were presumptuous. We got it wrong when we forgot to seek the counsel of the Lord. We got it wrong when we took of the accursed thing. We got it wrong and we failed and we suffered defeat. But God gives us another opportunity for victory. There are many do-overers in the Bible and do-overs. Many of our favorite Bible characters require do-overs. I want you to think of Abraham. When Abraham tried to fulfill the promises of God for himself, he ended up with Ishmael. Did God say, well, you got Ishmael. I had another, I was going to name him laughter for you, but you know what? You got Ishmael, live with it. God says, no, Abraham, let's go back to the promise again. The promise is through Sarah. We're going to do a do-over. You're going to have the right one, Isaac, laughter. Moses got a do-over. He knew he was supposed to be a leader of the people of Israel. And he went out at 40 years old in the prime of his life to take the leadership of Israel and to show the nation of Israel that he was for them. And he ended up killing, murdering an Egyptian and trying to hide it and getting caught. And then 40 years old, when he's 80, the Lord speaks to him and says, Moses, Now's the time for you to lead the people. We're going to do a do-over at 80. Would you say like 80? Couldn't you have gotten me at 79? But 80, we're going to do it over Moses. And this time I've got specific instructions on how we're going to do this do-over. David, when he became the king 
of Israel. He wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And the first time in 2 Samuel 6, he did it wrong. He tried to transport the Ark of the Covenant the same way that the Philistines had been doing it. And there was a young man, totally innocent. His name was Uzzah. He was sitting on the cart. The the wheel, one of the wheels on the cart hit a bump and it, it threatened to spill the ark onto the ground. So Uzzah reached out his hand to, to stabilize the ark and immediately touching the righteous ark of the covenant, he died. The anger of the Lord came against him. He died. And we're told that David was disillusioned. He was actually angry with the Lord. Why did Uzzah die? And he just stopped and he put the ark in the house of Obed-Edom and says, I'm not touching that. That was a place of defeat. I don't want to even get close to the ark of the covenant. If people die, innocent people die, I'm not doing this again. But then we see later in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see that David does it again. But this time he does it the specified way of the word. He sends the priest to bear the ark up by the poles and to walk it back to Jerusalem. And this time there is great celebration. There's joy. David is dancing before the ark of the Lord and so excited to bring the ark of God to its rightful place to Jerusalem. You see, it's a do-over. And the first, the first one resulted in defeat, failure, and death. But the second one in life and celebration and bringing God's covenant right to the heart of Israel. Jonah. Jonah, talk about somebody who needed a do-over. This guy hears the word of the Lord and he reacts by trying to run away. He goes in the opposite direction that God's calling him to. God is calling him to a trip over land. And what does Jonah do? He goes the opposite way over sea. He tries to run. He tries to hide. He hides in the bottom of a boat. A huge storm comes. The sailors wake up Jonah and said, you know, look, call to your God. We're about to go down. We're, we've never seen anything like this. This is the worst storm. We're sure we're going to die. And Jonah says, no, you're not going to die. It's my fault. I'm not listening to my God. And they're like, your God, who's your God? And, and Jonah has to make this full confession. Um, I'm actually a prophet who's walking in disobedience to my God. And, and that's why you're going through what you're going through. You know, sorry. <laughs> and they're like, why would you do that to us? Why would you as a prophet who hears the word do this? So You know the story. They throw Jonah overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish. He's in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. The fish vomits him up into the land. And then chapter 3, verse 1 of Jonah, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Oh my goodness, that's grace. A second time. Now see, if I was God, I would be like, is there another prophet? That one's sleeping in a boat. He really doesn't want to do this. I'm going to find another one. But no. Don't you love the fact that God's like, no, I'm sticking with Jonah. I called this man. I'm going to do it. Doesn't that give you so much hope? 
that when you blow it, God doesn't go around looking for another woman. Well, I have these promises for you, but if you don't want them, I'm going to give them to somebody else. God is committed to getting you into the promises he has for you. So he allows these do-overs. I think of Peter. Peter was given more than one do-over, wasn't he? Those of you who know the life of Peter the Apostle know that he was constantly given do-overs. In Luke chapter 5, we read that Peter was fishing all night and he caught nothing. He comes in, he's mending his nets and cleaning them as he listens to a sermon by Jesus. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, I want you to lunch out into the deep, let down your nets for do-over. And Peter says, you know, Jesus... We fished all night. We caught nothing. The sea is empty or the fish just aren't biting. They're not coming into the nets today. And he says, but nevertheless, at your word, I'll go out. And he does. And the net was so full of fish that it was threatening to sink the boat. In John chapter 21, Peter is again fishing all night with the other disciples. And again, they catch nothing. And a voice calls from shore, children, do you have any food? And they have to call back, nothing across. You know what that sounds like when you're calling across an empty lake? It's like this, nothing, 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 nothing. This is echoing, you failed. It's empty, 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 empty. And then the voice calls back, cast your net. On the other side, it's a do-over. And when they cast their net on the other side, the net was filled with fish. Filled with fish. It's a do-over. Perhaps you need a do-over in your life. God is the God of all grace who gives us a second, a third, fourth opportunity, and so on, to get it right. And he teaches us from our mistakes He realigns us with his word and he leads us into victory. The very place where we had defeat, he turns to a place of victory and renews his promises to us. Sometimes when we get it wrong, we wrongly conclude this is the end. God is finished with me and I don't have any hope for the promises of God. They're over for me. Other people can claim those promises, but I've lost my opportunity. Absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. We learn that God is a God of all grace. This is the lesson of Joshua 8. Having four children, I had my eldest daughter, And I expected absolute perfection from her. I was way too hard on my oldest daughter. Way too hard. I worried about her. Our nickname for her was Time Bomb. And the reason was, is because she was absolutely beautiful. She still is. She's just so beautiful. And she had, at 12, a figure that rivaled Dolly Parton. After the plastic surgery. Not my daughter, Dolly. <laughs> and, and she was so strong-willed. You know, she was a formidable force to be reckoned with. And so Brian and I nicknamed her the Time Bomb. And I remember when she was um, 17 years old, 
she, she moved, we were living in England, she moved over here to go to Bible college, she audited her classes. And at 18, she made the decision not to walk with the Lord. It was her decision, her choice. And we were talking to her about it. She says, Mom, I just love the world. I love everything about the world. I love their television programs. I love their styles. I just love the world. You know, she, she said, nothing personal. I'm like, nothing personal. I raised you to love Jesus. I told you all those Bible stories. And I remember just being like so brokenhearted. And praying and praying for her and falling on my knees and just saying, Lord, I lost her. I did a really bad job with this one. You gave me this precious child and I blew it. I, I blew it. And you know, looking back, I remember this one night I couldn't go to sleep because I thought of everything I did wrong as a mother. You ever have nights like that? I thought of every mean word I said, every stupid thing I did, every stupid rule I made. I, I couldn't sleep all night. I was on the side of my bed just repenting and repenting and repenting. And I asked God for a do-over. I remember being with a, a group of women. And we were all praying for our prodigals. And all I could do is say, oh, God, if you let me have this daughter again, if I could wake up like it was a dream, like it was a wonderful life, and now I know what I should do and what I should appreciate, if you'll just let me do a do-over. And this is what I prayed. Lord, I want to wash her hair again. I want to bathe her again. I want to brush her hair. I want to tell her stories. I want to dress her again. I want to do over. She had, I know this is going to sound really bad. She had an appendectomy. And I had to fly out and spend the night in the hospital room. And she caught peritonitis. And I had to wash her hair. I didn't have to. I got to wash her hair. I got to brush her hair. I got to bathe her. She couldn't bathe herself. I had to bathe her. I was like so excited. And she kept apologizing. Like, mom, I'm so sorry about this. I'm so sorry about this. I'm like, no, I prayed for this. She looked at me like, are you crazy? Are you absolutely insane? I'm like, no, I prayed for all of this. I just wanted a second chance to be your mommy and to tell you how beautiful you are and how much I love you. She said, Mom, tell me some stories. I told her Bible stories all over again. I just got to, you know, for like a week. I remember Brian calling and saying, I'm coming. I'm like, no, don't come. Don't fly over for England. This is my time. It's going so well. I just want this. I prayed for this. What have you prayed about lately? Huh? It's my time. He's like, no, I want to see my baby girl. I want to apologize to I'm like, no, she's only accepting women's apologies right now. It's like, let me talk to her. And I'm like, no, you don't need to talk to her. I can talk to her. And he's like, Cheryl, I can't believe you're doing this. I'm like, Brian, I'm living the prayer. Anyway, he did come. He did. And he came over. We left for England. And two weeks later, she came back to Jesus with everything in her. And she is, you know, she's walking with Jesus. She's been walking with Jesus. She made sure all of her siblings walked with Jesus. I mean, I tell you, she is a force to be reckoned with. She's awesome. And she has walked with Jesus now. It's, it's been over, um, 
20 years of walking with Jesus. I mean, it's just amazing what God has done in her life. I guess it's 18 years. My math skills aren't that great when I'm in the moment. He allowed me a do-over. I want you to realize he's a God who gives us do-overs. The places where we feel we've blown it, he gives us do-overs. Joshua got it wrong the first time he attacked Ai. Have you ever realized that this book is a book about a lot of imperfect people and one perfect savior of all grace? Joshua got it wrong. He didn't seek the Lord. He listened to the advice of the spies. He sent only 3,000 men to Ai. Under his leadership, Israel was defeated. Under his leadership, 36 lives were lost. Under his leadership, the men of Israel fled. Under his leadership, Israel was humiliated before their enemies. Under his leadership, he didn't know that one of his men had taken of the accursed thing. He didn't realize, even as the leader, that they were under a curse rather than a blessing. He had missed it. And there could be no victory until the sin was uncovered. Joshua made three grave mistakes that cost him the victory. He had not sought the Lord. He had acted presumptuously on his own understanding. He had underestimated the enemy and overestimated his own strength. It's over. No, it's not over. It's not over? You mean God forgives? I mean, I look at Joshua chapter 7. And in Joshua 7, Joshua doesn't even pray a nice prayer. This is not a nice prayer. This is the essence of Joshua's prayer. It's all your fault, God. Why did we even come out of Egypt, God? Why did you tell us to come in and to fight if you're not going to give us the victory? He blamed God for the loss. He told God about all the collateral damage, and he blamed it all on God. But it was an authentic prayer, and it was from the heart. And God answered this prayer. God answered an imperfect prayer prayer from an imperfect leader of an imperfect nation. God answered the prayer and God revealed that there was an accursed thing in the camp and the need for exposure and cleansing. Now in chapter eight, it's time to take AI. It's time to return to that very place where there was a defeat You know, there is nothing that smarts like failure is there. It's just almost as if that thing that you failed in is like failure, failure, failure. Every time you look at it, failure, failure. If you've gotten in an accident someplace, like every time you go through that intersection, failure, failure, failure. You know, this is the place where I blew it. You know, maybe you have something like that. You know, I have these curtains that I made and the sewing clutch has volunteered to make me new curtains. They're very sweet because I put chairs and couches in front of my curtains because when I made them, (laughs) they didn't reach the floor. I mismeasured. So they're all like two inches too short, you know, 
it's kind of like flood curtains. That's what I call them. You know, like flood pants. They're the pants that are too short. So flood curtains. You know, and sometimes they're just like, I look at them, you know, when I move the couch. And it says, failure, 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 you know. And I'm like, I know. But if this house ever gets flooded, I'm so sad. Failure tends to rock us to the core. It casts doubt on everything you thought you knew or thought you could do. Even a recipe, when it fails, makes us doubt, do I really know how to cook? Do I really have the skill for this? It leaves you unsteady and insecure. But God reassures Joshua with a promise of victory. It's like God's original promise to Joshua. Remember, Joshua, I told you to be strong and good courage. We read that in Joshua 1 verse 7, this promise that God speaks to him twice. And then before the victory at Jericho in Joshua 6, 2, God says, see, I have given you this city. Be strong and courageous. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 8, after this failure, God reiterates his promise to Joshua, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. We've heard that word before. Get up. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Before when they went against Ai, they didn't go with the promise of the Lord. Now they're going to go with the promise. And here is the do-over. God has specific Specific instructions for how victory will be won. There is a battle plan. Unlike Jericho, the booty will go to the people of Israel. There will be a strategic ambush and all the men of war will be involved. They are to divide up into three companies. The first company, 30,000 mighty men of valor, will hide behind the city of Ai, verse 4. They will not be too far from the city and they will be on high alert. The second company will go to the west of the city, 5,000 men hiding in a valley between Ai and Bethel. Now remember, Bethel is, it means the house of God. It's the place where Jacob had the dream, where he saw the angels of God descending and uh, ascending and descending on the ladder. And God spoke to him specific promises, gave him a promise in this very place. Bethel is also the place where Jacob renewed his covenant with God in Genesis 35 when he was uh, right after the victory um, with Esau. Then a third company will stay with Joshua. They will approach the city from the front. They will draw out the men of Bethel from the city. They will pretend to flee and thusly draw every man from the city. Unlike Jericho, they will go at night. And Joshua will accompany them. Unlike the first time they went to Ai, this time Joshua is going to be with them. He's going to stay with the troops. They will wait in the fields until Joshua's signal. These are such different plans than the plans of man, than the plans of the spies. Originally, when they attacked Ai, they went with only 3,000 men. There was no specific strategy. The word was attack. They went during the day. And Joshua did not accompany them. And then unlike Jericho, they're not going to march around the city. They're not going to make their presence known. They're going to draw the men out rather than 
seek to go into the city. There is a specific plan, and all of Israel will be involved, not just 3,000. This is going to be public. It's going to be personal because Joshua will be with them. It's going to be specific because there's a plan, and it's going to be precision because there's a timing involved. Joshua and the company followed God's plan. And Joshua and his men make themselves visible to the men of Ai. The men of Ai come out of the city. Joshua falls back with his group. And they draw every man out of the city. And it looks like another win for Ai. And all of the men in the city, no doubt, want to take part in victory over Israel. And Joshua is more interested in hearing the Lord than even what's going on in the battle. His ears are not attuned to the cry of the enemy or the cries of his men, but to the call of God. And at a certain time, in God's order, he says to Joshua, now raise up the spear that's in your hand. And as Joshua just stops, he's falling back from the enemy and he just stops and turns around, stares at the enemy, picks up the spear and holds it over his head. And the men that are with him turn on the men of Ai. The men to the west, they raise up their spears and they let the men who are behind Ai know. And the men to the west and the men behind Ai fall upon the city and they set it on fire. And the men of Ai, they turn, they see their city on fire. Their spirit, their courage leaves them. And Joshua and the men have victory over Ai. The king of Ai is captured, hung. His body is laid at the city city gate, and he is buried underneath the rubble. And Ai now becomes a monument a memorial to remind the people of the danger of not seeking the Lord, but to remind them that God's promise requires God's presence, God's power, God's plans, God's precision. Victory has come through the presence of God, the power of God, the plans of God, the precision of God. God has given them a second opportunity. And this time, it is victory. God's grace initiates a new zeal in the people of Israel. They congregate together at Mount Ebal. They rehearse the law of God. They lost to Ai because of disobedience to God's word. And now they've got this vehement desire to obey God, to know what God wants, what God requires to obey the commands of Moses. So as God commanded, they bring forth these stones that have no metal tool, no man-altered, man-enhanced carvings on them. They are totally shaped by God and by God alone, reminding all of Israel that it's not by might, nor by power, but victory comes by the Spirit of God. 
It's not about the strength of the army. It's not about the size of the army. It's not about the size or strength of the enemy. It's not about past victory, but it is about the presence and spirit of God. These people, as they come to Mount Ebel, the people of Israel, they now know what it feels like to be under the curse of God. And they know what it's like to be under the blessing of God. And now, as Joshua writes in limestone, the law of God, the Ten Commandments on the stone, the people are going to look at that law and then they are going to pass between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. From Mount Ebal, the Levites will shout the curses that are mentioned in Deuteronomy. Cursed is every man who does not seek the Lord. Cursed is every man who turns to idols. And it says, you will flee from your enemies. You will be the borrower and not the lender. And then the blessings, your baskets will be full. Your trees will be filled with fruit, the blessings of the Lord. And the people will walk through between the two in this valley that they might know that the choice is theirs to walk in the curse under the wrath of God or to walk under the blessing of God. And now that they know, they know. They read the Ten Commandments. No other gods, no idols. Never take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember and revere the Sabbath. Rest in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not have sex outside of marriage. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not cover. Then they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. The burnt offerings, the entire carcass of either a ram, a male goat, or a heifer, is burnt on the altar absolutely completely. And it's symbolic of a full surrender to God. They offer the peace offering. It's either a male or female ox, male or female, um, you know, a steer or a cow, a lamb or a goat. And this offering is like a barbecue. You get to eat it and so does the priest. It's shared with priests and people. It's interesting to note that it's offered with leaven and unleavened bread. Both are at the peace offering. In other words, it's saying God accepts us with our imperfections and our perfections. He is the God of grace. It's symbolic of giving thanks for what God has done and seeking God's blessing for the future. As the people enter this land of promise between these two hills, Mount Grisom and Mount Ebal, they will be cognizant of the curse that came upon them because of Achan's sin and how it affected the whole nation. They'll be aware of what that loss felt like and what that presumption did but they'll also be aware of what the victory felt like and the spoils of that victory and how they've been enriched by following the plans of God. Through God's do-over, they have learned a greater lesson. 
They have learned an appreciation for victory, awareness of God's presence, assurance of his promise, alertness to God's timing, and adherence to God's word. God also gives you and me the opportunity for do-overs. Maybe in your past you have had defeat, and maybe you're worried to try that same thing again. Maybe you shared your faith, and the reception was very hostile. The person you shared it with said, you know, stop it. Don't talk to me about this. And so you pulled back because it just was traumatic. It was absolutely traumatic. I remember my sophomore year of high school sharing my faith in a class And I remember the kids just screaming at me. Literally, there was one young man that came unglued because I said I believed in heaven. He was literally unglued. And he was like red in the face. He was screaming at me. He even threw a spitwad at me. I mean, it was like, wow, you really don't like what I'm saying. And I just, I remember even the teacher said to me, Cheryl, what, what do you think you're doing? I mean, really, you believe all that? I walked out of that class just like, oh, Lord, you know, that was, that was painful. That hurt. I didn't like that experience. There's so much good that came from that. I think I told you before that that teacher ended up getting saved. Uh, the boy who did the spit wad apologized, <laughs> told me he wanted to go to heaven, which was really good. But that wasn't until years later that I found that out. But I remember at the time thinking, I don't want to do this. Being in college, in a class at UCI, and somebody asking me about the ring I got for Christmas. My parents had given me uh, a ruby ring, and, and they told me it was my virtuous woman of ring. Well, I forgot what virtuous meant to the world. Somebody goes, oh, I like your ring. I'm like, oh, it's my virtuous woman ring. And the whole class went silent, like, Ugh. And they're like, what do you mean by that? I started sharing the gospel. Everybody in the class, it was a Spanish class, started asking me preguntas. They started asking me questions, just proving to you it was a Spanish class. They started asking me, escuche, por favor. They started asking me all these questions about the Lord. And I got a chance. And the reception was so different. But I remembered the fear, just like, here we go again. You know, I'm checking for spit watts. And instead, it was crazy. I had a girl come up to me going, can I go to church with you? And you're like, yes, you can. I'd love that. God allows us do-overs. Maybe you shared your faith with someone who was hostile to you. And God's telling you, share your faith again. You're like, Lord, the last time it didn't go so well. (laughs) Just saying, and I'm checking the house for cursed things. You know, sometimes we can think we know something so well. We get a routine. We get a methodology. And suddenly that methodology and routine doesn't work because we've been putting our faith in the methodology and the routine instead of the God of all grace. Instead of the God of all grace. In the past, I've had Jericho times of sharing where it just seems like the walls just fell down flat and I went right in. And other times, I felt like 
the walls went up and I was fleeing. But even failure has given me a greater awareness of how much I need God's presence and God's timing and God's plan and God's spirit. Perhaps you've had a friendship or a relationship, a job or some other AI in your life. And God's saying, let's do a do-over. Maybe the word of God is coming to you a second time and saying, I want you to go back. I want you to conquer AI. I don't want AIs in your life as monuments to the victory of the enemy. I want to give you this city as a monument to what I can do, not by might, not by your power, but by my spirit. God wants you to do it by his word, at his word, and through his word. Like the disciples out on the Galilee, maybe with the first AI, you used up all your expertise. You used up your best energy. You used up all your strength. And all you got was tangled and torn in empty nets and no success. But now at the word of the Lord, by his promise, by his presence, by his power, by his plan, by his precise timing, the nets are full. God wants to use the places of failure in your life for the deepest and greatest lessons and victories. He wants to make a living lesson of what happens when we do it wrong. So we won't want to go with Mount Ebal. He wants to remind us of how bad life is without him. Because we all need reminders of what life is like without God. We all need to be reminded of how desperately we need his presence. And his promises. And his power and his plans. And we all need to be reminded of what it feels like when the glory of the Lord, when the spirit of the Lord is doing it, the superior of of what it feels like to be doing it by God's plans, by God's time, that feeling of we can't get this wrong because God is so here. He is so among us. He is so for us when he guides our choices and when he protects us from presumption. And we begin to settle into his promises. We all need to to have a deeper dependency on the Lord. A deeper commitment to his word. You know what I'm really saying is simply this. Don't let your past defeat keep you from today's victory that God has for you. Because he wants to lead you in victory. So here is our slogan. When at first you don't succeed, seek the Lord and do it his way. Not try, try again. No. Seek the Lord and do it his way. Because see, the world says when at first you don't succeed, try, try again. No. But as believers, that's not how we take AI down. When at first you don't succeed, seek the Lord and his plan and his presence, and his power, and his plan, and his precision, 
and victory is assured. Amen. Now, my dog Barnabas, just for all of you, I give him a treat. I put it on his paw. My Barnabas prays. Not always. If, if I turn my head, he'll eat the treat. But if I say, wait, wait, he, he looks at me and I say, thank you, God, for my treat. Thank you for giving me to Brian and Cheryl Broderson, who love me so much, who treat me like a child rather than the dog that I am. Thank you that Cheryl brushes my coat, even though I don't appreciate it at times. Takes me on long walks, though I pull her mercilessly. Thank you that they feed me Trader Joe's food because I will eat no other food. Amen. And then at amen, he gets to eat that biscuit. You see, we need to be a little more like Barnabas. Wait, wait until you hear God's amen. And then it's time to eat the promised biscuit. And not before. I just thought of that illustration and felt led to share it with you. Let's go ahead and stand up. Lord, we hate our past defeats at AI. We're embarrassed. We're humiliated. We're ashamed. And yet, God, you allow us to fail that we might desire your blessings, that we might hate the curses, that we will walk in the blessings, that our choices will align themselves with your word and your ways and your heart and your desire and your promises. So God, right now, you said in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God. Lord, we thank you for our failures. Lord, we thank you for our mistakes. We thank you for our imperfections. Because, Lord, they show us how desperately we need a Savior. How desperately we need the God of all grace. How desperately we need your ways. And they're not natural to us. But we thank you that you are the God that takes our right hand and says, Fear not, for I am with you. Thank you, God of all grace. Lord, thank you for do-overs. And may where we had defeat before become a monument to the victory that we have, not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of the living God. Bring us into victory in all your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.